Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So I feel like there's something we have not discussed as a podcast crew, which is our nuclear launch protocol. This is so, important. This is a yeah. big oversight. So we need to figure out, so for instance, like, who has the nuclear launch authority? Who's going to carry the football? Wait, we, there's an antecedent question. Oh, there is? Who, who's like our nuclear targets? Oh, there's so many. Ben. When, <laughs> when rational security is going to, like, launch a nuclear strike, is it, like, against deep state radio? <laughs> like, like who, who is it that we're trying to take out? No, it's I think like that's a me. separate discussion. It's MeUndies. MeUndies, yes. <laughs> okay, so if we're going to launch a nuke on MeUndies, I feel like, I feel like, like Susan Cam or Tamara is... should have launch authority. I feel like I would be comfortable with them. Because we're the grown-ups in the room. I feel like they are probably the most trusted. It's <laughs> not so much an axis of adult as like a straight line of adults. Yes. Not, what is it when it's two? I, I, also, I feel like Ben should have the football because like I'm not minute, carrying think, the bag. I think Sophia Yan should carry the football. Well, that's good. But she's in like China, so that's probably... Yeah, so that would keep it away from... Who presses the button, though? Um, I think we should all do it together. Yeah, it's yeah, just like, like touching the globe. It, yes. Like the, touching that glowing orb. Yeah, yeah, it should require all four of our hands on it. The glowing orb, which, by the way, has started spontaneously turning itself on. Yes, uh, that is weird intervals. The, the broken glowing orb that never turned on now mysteriously turns itself on. It knows. It knows. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Mother May I Launch a Missile Edition. I'm Shane Harris, Trigger Happy Reporter. Um, I think that our protocol is a very sound one, you guys. I and think we can avoid uh, inadvertent escalation. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I think we can do that. I think we have established a protocol. And I'd just like to put me undies on notice that, yeah. you know, sponsorship <clears throat> opportunities are available. That's right. It's a this really nice company to have. Situation. Yeah. Be a shame if anything happened to it. I just think we should reject any principle of civilian control of ours. <laughs> yeah. This Most is a dictatorship, and we all know it. Let's just embrace it. Yeah. What's what? What? What do you call a triumvirate if there are four of us? A quadrumvirate. quadrumvirate. A tetrumvirate. Tetrumvirate. We're a tetrumvirate. I like it. I like it. I am here with the tetrumvirate in the jungle silo with Susan Hennessy, Tamar Kaufman, and Ben Wittes. Hi, everybody. Hey, Shane. Hi. It is the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. Visions of drumsticks <laughs> and subpoenas dancing in our heads. The turkeys no, are being pardoned as we speak. The turkey are right? the turkeys. The turkeys are about to be pardoned. Yeah. Right. Did you see Paul Manafort just changed his name to Wishbone? <laughs> <laughs> I saw that the White House was asking people to vote on a, which one got pardoned. Don't they both like, get kind pardoned? of sick? What's I thought they that? both got pardoned. Are they going to cut the head off of the loser like right there? <laughs> I mean, this is. I mean, I know it's a reality show presidency in some degree. This is kind of taking things too far. Indeed. Uh, this week on the podcast, speaking of nuclear protocols, should the president have the sole authority 
to launch nuclear missiles. We know he has the authority to pardon turkeys, but what about should he have the authority turkey? to pardon turkeys? <laughs> <laughs> uh, President Trump, you remember him, designates North Korea a state sponsor of terrorism. I guess we should say redesignates. We'll talk about that in the second segment. And the grown-ups in charge of national security are exhausted. It's been a long year. And calling each other idiots. And calling each other idiots. Fools! Um, all right. Let's talk about the United States nuclear protocol. Um, Congress took this question up in a hearing uh, this week, and also Richard Betts and Matt Waxman wrote uh, an intriguing piece for Lawfare on this question of whether or not the president, when it comes to a first strike, that is to say we're not launching nuclear missiles because someone has attacked us with nuclear missiles, but a first use of nuclear missiles against uh, a target, whether the president should have the sole authority to order that launch as he does now, or whether or not uh, he should have to go through some kind of procedural uh, check and uh, kind of executive branch sign off with various officials. And we'll talk about those proposals. Look, look, but first, let's talk about like, what is the basic case for why the president shouldn't have the sole authority to launch a nuclear first strike? Ben, why don't you talk about that? And is this question being raised because of the particular moment that we're in? Or is this something that has come up in previous administrations, questions that have been asked? So the question has always been there. Um, and it's always been, you know, a feature of the presidency since the 50s that uh, made people a little bit nervous. And the origins of strike, uh, centralized presidential strike authority was that uh, it actually came from the Eisenhower administration where you had all of these uh, field commanders who had potential access to nuclear weapons. And there was this understanding that developed that, gosh, you know, we're in kind of end the world territory and you don't want every general in the field to have the ability to make a decision that's going to end the world. That's not just simply a choice of weapon, right? It's a choice of escalation to the point of, of uh, you know, potentially civilization ending conflict. And so if somebody's going to do that, it should only be the commander in chief. And so there was a, a, a very deliberate decision to pull all the authority to uh, conduct uh, to order uh, the use of nuclear weapons into the hands of the president himself. Now, there are both constitutional questions, reasons why that may be hard to regulate, but also prudential reasons, i.e. when you decide to use a nuclear weapon, it's presumably because you're in a crisis that requires nimbleness and uh, you know, a sudden decision to to do something like that. And so it, it is um, one of the reasons it has persisted over the years is that uh, we have trusted presidents a little bit more than we have trusted the bureaucracies um, that sometimes surround them uh, and as well the, the bureaucratic mechanisms that you could imagine to restrain them. And I think what's changed over the last year is that that is certainly not true right now. And so when you have a president who's as mercurial and peculiar and uh, uh, clinically symptomatic as this one, uh, you begin to wonder about unilateral <laughs> authorities that that don't uh, that don't have checking mechanisms. So I think that one of sort of the um, 
It's interesting to see, you know, we're actually revisiting this kind of for the second time of the Trump presidency. Remember, we talked about this a lot sort of at the end of August. Ben, you and I had actually written an article about it um, sort of as Trump's very, very heated rhetoric about North Korea. This is the fire and fury sort of had people um, especially worked up about the issue. Um, What I'm seeing now is a lot of people sort of expressing a belief that the president has unchecked lawful authority to nuke anyone anywhere at any time. That strikes me as a little bit of an overstatement. Um, Just so, a, a weeb. Right. Bit. So, right. So assuming that we're in uh, we're in the world where there's there's not imminence. So either, um, you know, we're not under the conditions in which a nuke has actually been launched at us. And so it's sort of it's not a first strike. And also, you know, it's not we don't think that a, that a potential strike is imminent. Right. We're really out of the realm of imminence. I'm really talking about, you know, the, the pure first strikes. Um, there is a, a set of sort of lawful targets and there's unlawful targets under both domestic and international law that, you know, if it's, uh, you know, he can't nuke England or, you know, Japan just because he feels like it. If it's, you know, under international law, if it's, you know, a resort to uh, to force uh, that's non-defensive and, and and it's a non-defensive use of uh, of military force under domestic law. Well, I mean, if it if the, if there's no imminent threat, a first strike is unlawful, even against North Korea. Right. So really, what we're talking about and all of these sort of the these legal provisions and constitutional amendments is not about constraining the president's actual authority. It's about ensuring some kind of procedural check in the event an irrational president ordered an unlawful strike. What we're lacking now is not sort of the conditions of, well, is this, you know, can he do whatever he wants? Are, are there constraints? But is there a way to bake into the procedure um, some kind of check on, hey, is this a crazy person? Is this lawful? That's the piece that's missing. So I I agree that that's the focus of the policy conversation. But I think that the fact that that's the focus of the policy conversation spots, spotlights why we're having the conversation right now, which is that. This is a president that too many people do not trust to follow the law or even to care what the law says or what the law requires or does not permit. And if we didn't feel that way about the president, we wouldn't be talking about having procedures to check that power is being lawfully exercised. So that's the first thing. The second thing, though, is that I think there is a reason why this decision, this nuclear authority, you know, comes up kind of regularly at moments of national anxiety. It's a it's kind of a cultural meme, whether it's, you know, the hunt for Red October at the height of the Cold War uh, or um, more recently, I guess that movie Salt also had a scenario of unauthor, you know, stealing the president's authority to launch nukes. And it's because these weapons are, you know, the ultimate power. Uh, that the United States can deploy, they they uh, carry with them the the prospect of their use carries with them a sort of uh, eschatological dimension. Mm-hmm. You know that these could bring about the end of the world. That once you cross that threshold, there is no going back. And I I think that um, anxiety about the state of the world not just who our president is, is part of what's contributing to this question coming up again right now. This is a moment where not just Americans, but a lot of people around the world are anxious about disorder. They're anxious about accidental conflict. They're anxious about 
escalated conflict, and so this is coming up again. Let's talk about a specific proposal, which I I found really interesting that, that Betts and Waxman put on Lawfare, which is, okay, what if we required that for a first strike, not for any kind of crisis scenario in which the missiles are flying, or I guess we think there's about to be an imminent launch, that the president would have to get certification from the Secretary of Defense or his designate that the order is valid. In other words, that it's actually coming from the president. And I presume there'll be other factors to judge validity in that, uh, which is important because you literally, part of this, the protocol is designed to ensure, in fact, that it is the president giving the order and not someone impersonating him. And that the attorney general or a designate would have to decide whether the strike is legal. So, I mean, Ben or Susan, maybe tackle this for me, just from a procedural point of view, how does that strike you as a, as, a, as a possible solution? I mean, I can imagine the criticism of it will be that this will take far too long. Uh, uh, this will become more of a public action than a kind of a um, surprise attack, maybe, that you would presume one would want if you're about to use a nuclear missile, or maybe you wouldn't. But does that strike you as a viable mechanism for inserting some kind of check? And also, why should we believe that these two people won't just go along with any president's order? Well, so... Look, I mean, I think if you're talking about a circumstance of a first strike, um, in order for the first strike to be lawful, in order for that the attorney general to make that certification, it would have to be in a circumstance of imminent threat. Um, right. Have, it, like that's a baseline, right? And that's important. This because you're not, be... you're, you're not allowed to just like – nuke somebody for right. with in the absence by the way under domestic law you're not allowed to do it because that's a you know resort to force not in self-defense right so that's not within the president's inherent authority you can't do it without congressional authorization and we should stipulate in a first strike is grave bordering on crazy in the first place but go ahead <laughs> um and in international law it's a violation of the u.n charter to just attack somebody a country yeah, and no one ever violates the u.n charter um so no one ever violates the, you know it is true that countries violate the u.n charter but they generally claim when they're doing it that they're acting in self-defense Right. Um, and a president would generally claim that they're engaged in preemptive self-defense by by carrying out a first strike. Right. So the so the real question here is president decides in a first strike situation and not, you know, which is which is to say not so exigent that we think somebody's already launched against us. Right. That, um, you know, that. Okay, we need somebody to get this certification. First of all, I don't think that certification is going to be, unless it's really crazy, that difficult to get. Because most of the time, if you're con- if you're at a stage of international tensions where you're where you're um, contemplating this a, a nuclear strike, right? You can colorably say it's self-defense. You're doing it because you think they're preparing to strike you or something. Um, so my my assumption is that this is probably a, a doable thing, that it's not uh, – um, but that it also wouldn't actually do that much in the sense that, OK, yes, you would say the president has decided he wants to nuke Iceland tomorrow He's not going to be able to get Jeff Sessions to certify that that's legal. But I don't really think that that's the risk, right? The risk is that the president too impulsively, too soon decides to actually escalate against North Korea. 
And in the circumstance in which you're contemplating attacking a nuclear power that is in fact threatening to attack you, you're probably going to be able to get your attorney general to certify what you want. And your your secretary of defense is probably going to certify that, uh, you know, it was really you that, that said it. So I'm... I'm, so it's not really a constraint at all, is what you're saying. Well, I'm not sure about that, well, it's, but it's I'm just hurdle, not sure but... how much work it's really going to well, do. Let me do. ask you this way. I mean, maybe this is this is a way of getting more. <clears throat> that's sort of the, the 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 meat of this question, and perhaps the particular anxieties that are making it come up now, which is, let's say, hypothetically, the president decided, as some kind of punitive measure, or for reasons other than imminence decided, or maybe it's imminence in his own mind, I'm going to nuke Pyongyang. This is this is just what we have to do. We've got to do it. Do we believe that the people around him and the mechanisms that they represent would move to constrain him? Even you know, whether it's something like the military saying, This is an unlawful order, we will Paul Ryan would it. say he's very concerned. Well yeah, well, it's, well I mean, it's, it's a legitimate question. I mean we're not I mean I mean we're we start when we talk, start talking about this, it naturally raises questions of are we moving into the idea of a coup or somehow people like physically blocking the president or don't execute the code. But like do we think do we think it, this president or another? I mean, we're talking a little bit here about a kind of a madman scenario. Do we think the mechanisms around him are sufficient that they would say this is completely ill-advised and we're not doing it? Right. So I, I think it's sort of necessary to put it in context. And, and Garrett Graff has a really good piece from I don't know back in July or something at this point, sort of about the history of uh, uh, you know sort of launch orders and constraints. And, and he makes the important point that look, um, this sort of this four-minute time dimension um, was sort of in an age be- uh, before nuclear capability submarines um, at a point in which actually uh, right the ability to to respond was was time limited you only had X amount of time uh, or else an adversary could in theory destroy your capacity Before to retaliate and that's around, that's yeah. sort of completely gone yeah. now um, <clears throat> and so these these time constraints are essentially artificial they're super artificial in the context we're talking about in which it's a genuine sort of first strike so I think that a lot of these proposals are about building in time and building in people right so you're um imagining a more considered decision exactly so you're imagining this scenario in which trump really really impulsively is doing something and maybe there's an open question about lawfulness but it's just kind of crazy on its face um if if what you wanted was for that decision to not occur without sort of impinging on the president's constitutional authority, I do think a reasonable strategy is to say, okay, how can we slow it down uh, to ensure that these other mechanisms have time to sort of take root? And how do we, you know, sort of ensure that there are grownups in the room, right? Who are the other actors that we're going to want to independently certify sort of under their, you know, and, and ask them to do so in their own official capacity so they have independent obligations to not just be the president's yes man, but to say, yes, we are certifying that we believe X, Y, and Z are true. I I, I mean, I it is obviously responsive to sort of the, I don't peculiarities of Trump's uh, I don't even know how to describe it at this point, instincts or, or uh, impulsiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do think that's a, that's a reasonably calibrated strategy and one that should that situation actually emerge, uh, probably has a, a reasonable possibility of working. You know, I, I feel like it's of a piece with other 
um, attempts we've seen uh, initiated from within the cabinet to slow roll through process presidential decisions that um, that that folks in the executive branch have reason to think are more impulsive, less thought through, perhaps unconstructive. Like, you know, whether we're talking about the second round of the uh, travel ban or the transgender military ban, which I think the Defense Department very successfully kind of wrapped in cotton through a process that is um, so lengthy that it may never end, Uh, you know, and and there's something to be said for that in terms of kind of ensuring that impulsivity doesn't reign. But I, when I step back from policy world and I think about it from the perspective of an American somewhere wanting their government to do things for them and wanting to feel like the people that they elected have the capacity to actually make changes on their behalf, those sorts of institutional process-based, slow-rolling solutions actually undermine public trust in government. They undermine public trust in institutions, and they make people frustrated. And so I recognize the value of them in the moment for solving particular problems, but I worry about the impact overall. Yeah, and and I just want to say a lot of these proposals, and I, and I think uh, the one that that um, we published this week is is – the most sophisticated of them that I've seen. They are Band-Aid attempts uh, to deal with a problem that is actually going to be resistant to Band-Aids, and that is having a president whose mental uh, health you sufficiently question that you want to limit his authority. And the, the, the real answer to that problem is to elect people whose mental healths and oaths of office you take uh, more seriously. Oh, that'll fix everything. <laughs> Stop electing crazy people. <laughs> we won't have to worry about this anymore. All right, let's move on to our next topic. President Trump has redesignated North Korea, a state sponsor of terrorism, in a move that I think is generally being seen as uh, obviously a response to its nuclear weapons development program and potentially paving the way um, for further sanctions of the country. Tomorrow, first explain why this is North Korea is kind of going back on the list, but also, I mean, is this, how significant of a move is this? Because I think a lot of people were skeptical yesterday that this was really going to change the calculus all that much with respect to North Korea and how the U.S. or any other country can prevent it from developing uh, its nuclear weapons capability. Yeah, so um, this is a, a list that's kept um, – by the State Department of State Sponsors of Terrorism. The the other countries on the list are Iran, Sudan, and Syria. Um, and North Korea had been on the list, um, I think, from the late 80s. But then uh, when President George W. Bush was engaged in the last round of nuclear negotiations with the North Koreans, they took the North Koreans off the list. So the redesignation is based essentially on the fact that North Korea has engaged in assassinations on foreign soil, including uh, notoriously the use of a chemical to assassinate Kim Jong-un's half-brother in an airport in Manila, was it? Um, crazy. Kuala Lumpur. Kuala Lumpur. Bond villain style crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very, very colorful assassination. Caught um, on tape. Caught on tape, right. Uh, and and so, you know, there that's certainly... A, a reasonable basis for designation, but 
Um, I think that that counterterrorism experts have raised some questions, uh, both about whether it's a sufficient justification, but also whether the designation is actually very useful politically in the current circumstances. I mean, it seems to me that that what we've seen in the last couple months is the administration pivot very hard and without acknowledging it um, from uh, a sort of we don't want negotiations. There's no way to solve this problem other than through coercion kind of approach to coercive diplomacy, which is we will use threats and um, sticks to drive North Korea back to the negotiating table. And this is meant as a stick. Um, you know, in other words, we're going to punish you. Uh, but then we can always take it away if you play nice at the negotiating table. So it seems that that's the underlying kind of policy logic. Um, the question is whether it actually can have that effect in practice. Dan Benjamin, who was a colleague of mine in the State Department, he was Secretary Clinton's uh, coordinator for counterterrorism, um, really feels like the designation doesn't add anything to the existing sanctions on North Korea, which are about as severe as we can make them, but also not particularly effective given how isolated the North Korean economy is from the world and North Korea is generally from the world. So it doesn't add any concrete tools to our arsenal to increase the pressure. It's more a symbolic move. And then that raises the question, does North Korea care that it's on the state sponsors of terrorism yeah, and doesn't, list? And it like, not to like, you know, make this, just reduce it to like schoolyard taunt and be like we kind of look like chumps if we're just throwing that around and i'm gonna put you in the nuclear and the state terrorism well like, exactly so? right i mean why so it doesn't that doesn't that diminish our credibility by doing it so if the underlying policy logic is coercive diplomacy that we use threats and and pressures to drive them to the negotiating table this looks an awful yeah. like like a lot like an empty threat. And yes, I would agree it undermines our credibility. I mean, do you worry at all about sort of <clears throat> the potential ramifications of the hypo uh, the hypocrisy or I guess um, the inconsistent approach, right? So um, if they're going to be designating North Korea on the grounds of assassinating individuals on foreign soil. Yeah, um, we don't know any other countries that have done that right? that aren't on the list. Um, right? Most notably <laughs> like, the Russians, right. right? There's a, like, <clears throat> their activity in Ukraine, their activity even in the United Kingdom. Um, you know, there's been some some documented cases. So Also uh, using chemicals. Right. So, so what does it mean whenever we come up with a list that is both under-inclusive and also potentially over-inclusive whenever you look at countries like Sudan, uh, you know, that are do all kinds of terrible things, but maybe do not qualify as sort of sponsors of terrorism at this point. Does that, is your sense that it sort of, it guts the meaning of the list or are we already sort of in the category of it, it doesn't do much and so it doesn't matter and, and it's symbolic. But it we've, was all, symbolic well, we've always had this problem. I mean, Qatar is an active sponsor of Hamas, and we don't designate Qatar. Right? Israel has carried out assassinations on foreign soil, reportedly, and we don't designate Israel. Right, although, although, <laughs> although uh, I, I think Israeli, uh, Israeli actions are probably closer in character to the kinds of actions that the United States itself takes um, which is to say they're, they target military enemies, not political uh, opposition. 
Whereas, um, well, no, but my point is much simpler, which is that we've never before designated countries simply for carrying out assassinations. And there are other countries that have carried out assassinations that we are not going to designate on that basis. Right. But there are also but 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 even if you if even if you restrict the point to pure terrorism, there are plenty of countries that are that are actively engaged with pure terrorist groups. Uh, that we don't, um, you know, that we don't designate on that basis, um, because the state sponsor of, of terrorist lists is not a list of all countries that sponsor groups that, in our judgment, are terrorist groups. It's a list of countries, all of of countries that sponsor terrorist groups that we decide to put on the state sponsor, or, or that have list. particularly targeted us. It's always been a short list, and I think that that's one way of trying to constrain the hypocrisy problem that afflicts the United States in with all of these sorts of designations. But I think the broader issue is, you know, to what extent, and this isn't just about the state sponsors list, but in general, to what extent are we now in a place where we're just labeling as terrorists, you know, things that we don't like, actors that we don't like or behaviors that we don't like, um, we're we're using the T word just the way policymakers and politicians, you know, stick the phrase national security into something as a way of saying this is important. Are we now sticking the word terrorism on things as a way of saying they're really, really bad? And I, I think that more than hypocrisy is actually the danger here. So I'm curious, and, and um, our colleague Deanne Byman has sort of raised this question as well, and I'm curious for your thoughts, particularly, Tammy, um, you know, he, like this notion that um, a, a sponsor of terrorism is a binary thing, right? You either are this thing or you are not this thing as opposed to know there is a spectrum of relatively complex activity. And so actually any approach that sort of just designated on or off is probably going to be flawed at at its core. I mean, is, is that, uh, do you think it's, it's, this is even a reasonable approach at the outset to sort of say, we can, we can put people into, into these types of categories? I don't, yeah. <laughs> Again, you know, there's the symbolic dimension, sort of sticking a label on a country. But at bottom, this is a policy tool, okay? A designation as a state sponsor opens the door to particular types of um, U.S. activity sanctions. And, you know, and so it's a tool and you can use it. Is it a useful tool in a given circumstance? That should be the policy question. Um, not, you know, this is, it, it's not an analytical judgment. It's not um, a moral judgment. It's a policy tool. And I think that's that's the best way to think about it. Um, and I think that also helps address the hypocrisy question, because the United States is a country with its own interests for which it doesn't need to apologize. And it's going to use its policy tools on behalf of its interests. Right. On the other hand, I do think there is an argument that these sorts of designations are at their best when they comport with a reasonable assessment of reality. Well, and, that's part of what makes them more or less effective. Right. Yes. And so, you know, the counterexample here is the State Department Human Rights Report, which is, you know, done to a large degree without fear or favor for the countries in question. We slam our allies in it every year 
to the extent that our allies are significant human rights abusers. And the report, as a consequence, has a lot of credibility. And, um, and you know, when certain activities, that certain types of designations that the State Department engages in, uh, for example, countries of particular concern on religious freedom that just happen to include all the countries we don't like and not some of the ones that we do like, even though they can be egregiously awful on religious freedom, have a lot less credibility. And the, and the foreign terrorist sponsor designation is, is, I think, one of those ones that is a little bit more transparently political and the fact that North Korea, which despite its myriad sins of which which are, you know, voluminous and terrible and, you know, without parallel in the rest of the world, is not a great state sponsor of terror, including that on the list feels a little bit like, you know, sort of throwing a grapefruit at them. Yeah. I mean, I guess when I saw the news of the designation, my first thought was George W. Bush's axis of evil speech. Mm. And... You know, it strikes me that um, if we had a president whose words meant something more as policy statements, then they might be able to achieve this symbolic punch, this grapefruit throw, without using without using a concrete tool like the state sponsor list, he could just call them the axis of evil, right? He could he could I, knit them together into a narrative of bad behavior that's bad for international security. And that's why other countries should work with us in combating this, you know, and you could get the moral suasion and you could get the symbolic power. But we don't have a president whose words are meaningful. In fact, we don't have a president that we can rely on to use words in a coherent manner on behalf of our policy goals. And so we are stuck with resorting to these kinds of blunt instruments. All right. Well, that's a nice, interesting pivot to our third topic. <laughs> blunt instruments. <laughs> well, <clears throat> president and his words, or maybe even more precisely, the National Security Advisor's words. BuzzFeed had a very interesting story this week citing multiple sources that over a dinner in July with the CEO of Oracle, the big tech company, H.R. McMaster, the national security advisor, um, trashed Donald Trump, variously calling him an idiot, a dope, and with the intelligence, quote, of a kindergartner. Uh, there were about five sources for this, and then a sixth source said he was not familiar with the details of that dinner, but said that McMaster had made similarly derogatory comments about Trump's intelligence to him in private. Um Putting aside here the question of Trump's intelligence, which we've talked a lot about on, this, uh, on, on the podcast before, but, you know, this story, and you couple it with the story about Rex Tillerson in an exasperated moment saying the president was a moron. I believe it was a fucking moron. Well, it, it, what? yes, it was. We can say that. We're on a podcast. <laughs> We're not under FCC rules. <laughs> <laughs> it raises the question, I think, for some people, and certainly did for me, is like, okay, let's presume for sake of argument that these stories are accurate. I... I have great faith in the accuracy of the NBC story, the Buster Peace story just came out, but I have no particular reason to doubt it based on conversations that I've had with people in the administration. Um, why are these guys hanging around? Um, it, it raises the question of if these are the grown-ups, right? Tillerson, McMaster, Mattis is in that category too. I mean, is it if they really feel this way, why are they hanging around and how much longer can we expect them to? So I, I'm not quite willing to accept your premise that this is accurate. So I think that okay. the, the way to describe this story is 
four or five sources said that one participant at this dinner that they were not a party to told them right, okay, that so McMaster used the language. So it's, it's like yeah. it's very right. and another source sourcing. who said who said he was at the dinner said on the record this was not said. Yeah. So right? has okay. McMaster and so has and the individual Safricats who this um who the the CEO of Oracle who who uh, purportedly said this to other people has gone on record saying he, not only did McMaster not say it at the dinner, I never told anybody that that he said that at the dinner. Okay. So I do so I, I think that sort of um you know it also raises questions of you know um Ezra Cohen Watnick, the former uh NSC director of uh, of intelligence who was ousted under extremely negative terms with H.R. McMaster, is now at Oracle. Um, so there's a lots of reasons to sort of be really suspicious about, uh, is this a hit on McMaster? That said, it does raise sort of the secondary question of, does anyone actually not believe that H.R. McMaster thinks Donald Trump is an idiot with the intellect of a kindergartner? Yeah, if he didn't say it in this dinner... <laughs> <laughs> you know, first of all, it doesn't mean it's not true, and it doesn't mean he doesn't think it. So I think Shane's question actually still stands. No, I I agree, right? So it's sort of like it, it does, you know, we're back to, you know, we're a year post-election. These people have sort of been through the ringer. They're still fighting off these weird, you know, assaults from from whoever, uh, you know, the, the uh, Bannon camp. Why are they still around? Has their sort of thesis been borne out of, you know, having these rational adults in the room is going to keep us all on course. Um, I, I have to say, I uh, if I were McMaster, if I were Mattis, um, I would have left a long time ago at this point. Um, I, I... So I have less of a sense of Matt, uh, of McMaster because he has to be in the immediate proximity of the president. And that strikes me as a, as a different order. But, um, but I think, you know, Mattis can congratulate himself honestly that he has performed an immense public service. And uh, I don't think Tillerson can because he's the, the collateral damage in Tillerson's part, case is destroying the State Department. But Mattis, over the year that um, Trump, the Trump administration has been in office, Mattis has actually protected the Defense Department from any serious damage that, you know, none of the crazy stuff. Um, he has made progress on his principal policy priority, which seems to be the defeat of ISIS. And he has largely kept himself out of the, the craziness that is the, uh, the Trump administration, uh, the scandals, the, uh, the, the insanity. And so I think if you're, if you're, at least for that member of the axis of adults, I think it's all positive, actually. And there, you know, that yes, there have been embarrassing moments. Uh, yes, there have been things that um, I'm sure he cringes when he thinks about. But is the country better off because of because of Jim Mattis's service in the Defense Department? I just don't have any doubt of that. And I think if I were him, I would go to sleep every night saying there's not much I can do, but at least I can protect the Defense Department and I'm show up for work with pride every day. So I, I think that's and I, I think there's probably a lot that we don't know about decisions that have been forestalled or reversed or prevented or whatever, and not just in the Defense Department. So I think the full story 
is going to come out over years and years from now. Um, and it may be that there are other heroes <laughs> that we could point to then. Um, but I think that what's interesting about Mattis is that he's the one who, from his very first meeting with President-elect Donald Trump, set a tone where he you know, said to his face, I disagree with you about these things. And Trump came out in public after that meeting and said, we sat down and we disagreed about these three things, and I still really like this guy. And so I think Mattis was able to de declare his independence right at the beginning and mm -hmm. exercise it every day. I think Tillerson never declared his independence, um, came in with some bizarre sense of his purpose, which he is actually executing, but it's horrifically bad for America's national interests. Um and then Kelly and McMaster, I think, are in a different category because they're serving in the White House. Um, Kelly, in his own personal views on some of these political and policy questions, actually seems to be closer to the president than some people were willing to acknowledge up front, although I think it was pretty clear. Um, and he has proven himself a very willing political adjutant to this president. Um, and McMaster, too, although he's in uniform, and so we've talked on the podcast about how much leeway he actually had to refuse this assignment, um, but he has been willing to go on TV and defend the president and the president's approach and the president's policy beyond what he's strictly required to do. And that may be the pressure that comes with serving directly in the White House, but I think that those two guys have implicated themselves in ways that Mattis has never done. I mean, it is sort of interesting to take stock at the end of, you know, sort of the first year, including that transition period, and think about who is still standing, right? So um, I think earlier on, we, we talked about the the probability or possibility that we would not make it to a year one, like January 20 marker without a major national security resignation, right? That somebody Michael high Flynn. level. We, we got in right away. <laughs> but if you think about it, right. Flynn, <laughs> three weeks. Flynn's out. Um, Katie McFarland, someone who uh, not very Remember many people her? believe. <laughs> yeah. Was all that qualified. Gorka, right? So all of these people that were sort of the... Um, some of the the ugliest elements or the or the worst uh, uh, sort of parts of of Trumpism that had infected the national security community, actually large portions of them have been forced out of the administration, um, and kind of the people who were those sane moderate types are still standing. And so, sort of, I I wondered separate and apart from which policy or or security decisions have been won or lost over the course of the year, whether or not we can sort of say well this group of people is still there and and there's evidence that kind of the worst of the worst is getting pushed out tammy looks skeptical i uh i'm not, not optimistic I'm not, i guess I, I would agree with you that some of the worst of the worst have exited but i don't think that means that we are out of the woods the second worst of the worst is not that great <laughs> All right, let's move on uh, to a great thing, a happy thing. We're going to do special object lessons today. It's Thanksgiving. It's almost Thanksgiving. And our objects today are going to be things that we're thankful for. In honor of Sarah Huckabee Sanders. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> yes. Sarah Huckabee Sanders yesterday made all the reporters in the White House press corps 
say something that they were thankful for Shut before up. she would take their question. Uh, the up. first I reporter totally answered this. the First Amendment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. She's such a mom. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, Ben, what are you thankful for? I am thankful for uh, a, a, a reporter, speaking of reporters, at the Houston Chronicle named Sinjin Barnard Smith, who it's a good name. name. Um, uh, And I I met Sinjin uh, uh, virtually on Twitter, actually quite literally during Hurricane Harvey, uh, when he was uh, wrote a story about organizations that were doing actual relief and and were not shyster organizations. And I tweeted it out uh, and tried to draw people uh, to his reporting on organizations that were actually doing real stuff in Houston. Um, and the other day, uh, he, um, from an antique store in Houston, uh, tweeted at me a picture of a not-so-baby cannon, uh, which has come to be named Uncle Cannon, um, that, uh, that he had found uh, in in this antique store, and actually a, a, a huge number of baby cannons as well, uh, antique baby cannons. And so he uh, he on my behalf bought me Uncle Cannon Aww. and uh, dropped it in the mail, and it is now gracing the file cabinet of my uh, in my office. It's an impressive oh my God, cannon. I haven't even seen it, it yet. It's large and brass, and um, really and it handsome. is not operable, so we are Aww. not going to be firing it. Uncle but Cannon has retired. Uncle Cannon <laughs> it is a retired cannon, and it, it met Stately. it met Baby Cannon the other day, and on the show page you can see uh, for size comparison Uncle Cannon hovering over Baby Cannon <laughs> protectively. Uh, so. Uh, uh, a, a, a big shout out to Sinjin, uh, and uh, and many many thanks. Susan, you want to go next? I will go next. I have two. Um, so I am grateful to uh, the members of the civil service and intelligence community that are still showing up for work every day. Um, I know this has been a difficult, demoralizing, exhausting absurd year um, and I just think we should all take a moment to think about the people who have decided to stick it out on behalf of their country and uh, express our gratitude um, and I am thankful to all of you because this has been the fucking craziest year and sitting down <laughs> the for fucking one hour th- in the words of, uh, of Rex Tillerson the fucking craziest year um, and sitting down for an hour a week has helped preserve my incredibly fragile sanity and so i am grateful for our uh, merry bunch in the jungle studio as are are we grateful for you too um so i was away last week as you know i spent the week in boston with visits to both brandeis and tufts and uh and so um i i'm really grateful for the students that I met there and particularly it was really heartwarming to meet a bunch of student listeners to rational security. Um, But, you know, it's been a year where I think we've spent a lot of time talking and I've spent a lot of time thinking about the impact of this current insanity on those who aspire to careers in national security. And, um, and, you know, I've also talked about uh, a lot uh, 
the the kind of struggles for greater diversity and inclusion in national security. And it was great to spend a week with these energetic, accomplished, inspiring students who uh, want to have their own careers in national security um, and foreign policy and uh, and to know that you're out there listening to the show. So we actually have people that we're talking to when we sit in the jungle studio and talk to one another. So thanks to all of you for listening and thanks for being awesome. Uh, I am thankful for my mom. Uh, Carol so we're mom, thankful for your mom too. She's on, on a fundamental level because <laughs> <laughs> without mom, there's no me. Uh, mom just got back from a cruise, actually a transatlantic cruise. She spent two weeks on a boat. Wow. It's a long time on a boat. Yep. In the library, they had a copy of my first book, too. So she was, like, oh. texting me from it, and she thought that was so cool. How many people on that boat do you think she showed that book to? Oh. It was like, that's my son. Apparently, she and my aunt, like, literally had, like, a picture of me on the iPad, and we're going around and showing it. <laughs> and comparing that's it awesome. to all of it. What's an iPad for, if not that? <laughs> right? I just love She's like, she gets a commission check. Uh, but I specifically want to say that I'm thankful for her, because when I read these stories of men behaving in a most appalling and frankly bordering on criminal fashion in many cases i know that my mother raised me right because i have not lost my capacity for outrage and i know how to recognize that behavior for being wrong and how people can overcome it so my mom was uh she worked a lot she wasn't home for much of the time when we were growing up but was a very successful business person, became a really important executive in many lines of work, and had to deal with a lot of the kinds of things that I think we're probably seeing right now, um, but was a tremendous mentor to other women uh, and people who she worked with and really gave many people a start in their careers that they might not have otherwise had. And I think instilled both in me and my brother a respect for, number one, professionalism and what it means to be a business person and particularly a business owner, which she became but also how to treat people fairly and be good to people. So I just know that when I read these stories and <laughs> it kind of summons the outrage and the concern and the empathy that I have that my mama raised me right. So thanks, Mom. Here's here. Thanks, mom. thanks Shane's job. mom. Yeah. All right. I got through it. <laughs> uh, that brings us to the end of the podcast. A special Thanksgiving edition of Rational Security which is a production, as always, of Lawfare. You can find our Twitter feed at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. You can find our show archive at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Still. Still there. We're going to take it down eventually. Hanging out. Yeah. We're we're gonna, we just haven't it. gotten around to it yet. Yeah. It's a New Year's resolution. When you download the podcast, please make sure to leave us a nice rating and review. We really appreciate your constructive comments. Our audio engineer this week is Vanessa Sauter. Our show is produced and edited by Jen Patia. Music this week by Donald Trump and the First Strike Sextet. All right. Yeah, I'm not in love with that one, Shane. I'm not in love with it either. But, you know. I mean, it could be like Who are they? I think think it's It's like like the Attorney General on Kazoo. (laughs) <laughs> the Secretary of Defense on Pursuit. No, it's not. It's not a sextet that goes no. well together. I think. I think music this week is by First Strike. It's a metal band. First Strike. <laughs> I did just think Donald Trump and the First Strike, which is probably what I should have gone with. Was my yeah. first, yeah. I think first Strike uh, is a metal band. Yeah, I think so. Sophia Yan, who actually plays her music, probably would kill in a metal band. She would be awesome on the keys. On behalf of my friend Susan Hennessy. Tomorrow, Kaufman Wittis and Ben Wittis. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.